right. Project Herpetoculture Podcast. This is episode 40. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined as always by the handsome and charismatic Philip Leitz of Arids Only. Whoa. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. But before I do, I'm going to go through our standard housekeeping and give a shout out to Dylan at the Animals at Home Network for hosting us. Goat. Um, we're really stoked to be on this platform. He is the goat. And um, I also want to give a shout out to Charlie, who edits our audio and keeps trains on, on tracks over here. Um, it's really appreciated and helpful. Um, check him out at Make Luck Marketing if you need any social media marketing help. And um, yeah, I also want to mention our sponsors. We've got um, Custom Reptile Habitats for some amazing um, premium PVC HDPE reptile enclosures. And um, we have an affiliate link posted in our bio. So if you're looking for a premium enclosure and you want to purchase through that link, we'll get a little kickback at no additional cost to you. Um, we also have Redline Shipping for all of your reptile shipping needs. Um, shout out to Robin at Redline for um, su- supporting the show. It means a lot. And um, last but not least, we have Cold-Blooded Caffeine. And they are purveyors of premium coffee from across the globe. And they donate a small percentage from each bag of coffee purchased to conservation and coffee growing regions, um, which also supports some awesome herpetofauna. So check them out and use the code Project Herp for an extra 10% off. And um, last little plug is just for our Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show directly, we always appreciate that. And you can find us at patreon.com slash Project Herpetoculture. And am I missing anything, Phil? I do not think so, sir. Okay. All right. So with nice all job. that said, you did that. You did a I'm very, very, you did a very good job. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was yeah, just nice. like, you, let's get to this. Okay. So um, with all that out of the way, I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for the show, which is Lisa Farina. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, you guys. Good yeah. to be here. <laughs> I'm so stoked that you're joining us. Yeah. So just to start off, I'm curious. I mean, it's kind of standard thing, but I'd love to hear about how you started out in herpetoculture. What brought you to this craft? Well, I'm kind of a late bloomer. I'm not the standard story where people say, oh, I was obsessed with reptiles my whole life. I actually wasn't. Um, I I grew up on a dairy, so I was exposed to animals my whole life. And I do love animals. Um, but I always, um, I'm kind of one of those people that was like bad, bad. I like skipped class. I wasn't a good student. So I spent my life, um, kind of just like living in apartments with a bunch of roommates partying and stuff like that. And, um, finally I got a house, um, and I got a dog and a cat. I wanted a dog. And, um, so I got a house and, um, one of my good friends, her, um, she had a teenage son and, um, he was, they were really into animals and he kept some, he had some pet snakes. He had a ball python, a hog nose. And then, um, I think when he was 15, he went behind his parents back and, um, bought a baby retic from someone online. Oh no. And they were like, oh my God, he bought a reticulated python. And then they're like, do you want to come over and see it? And I was like, oh yes. So I went over there and I held the snake and that was 2015. And I just, I just held that snake and 
it, it felt electric. Like I couldn't stop mm-hmm. thinking about it. I wanted to like hold, I wanted to, like, I wanted to get my own. I was like, that was amazing. It was kind of like a fear thing. Like I was a little bit afraid when I was holding it, mm-hmm. even though it was a tiny baby, I was a little bit like this thing could like grow up and kill me. <laughs> like it was some weird kind of, <laughs> yeah. but it made me I really, you know, I started going online, reading about, um, keep keeping pets. And of course I found out about ball pythons. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I ended up everyone, all the online recommendations were to ball pythons are the best first starter snake. Um, especially if, if you wanted a python, I wasn't really, I wanted a python. I knew that I didn't want a corn mm-hmm. snake. Um, and so I got a ball python and I, I liked it and I, I had trouble with it at first. It, it would, it was getting stuck shed. And so I, I had, I had to learn a lot more and from that mm-hmm. ball python. And, um, I just started like listening to podcasts and I found, um, Morelia Python radio and they yeah. were talking. And I also, there was one called urban jungle or something like that. And they, they would talk about all kinds of things. And, um, cause I kind of wanted, I also had around the same time, I went to the Sacramento reptile show for the first time and I saw baby green tree pythons and I was Mm. kind of like drawn to those. I was like, I'd never seen something like that. They're so beautiful. They look like a flower, but they're a snake, you know, they're sitting there. So, you know, they're really hard to keep. So that's why I ended up getting the ball python because everyone said, Oh, they'll die. If you get a baby mm-hmm. green tree python, like my friends wouldn't even let me look at the, them at the table. They were like, come on, let's keep walking. Those die. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so, um, that's, that's basically how it all started. I, I eventually did get a green tree python. It wasn't a baby though. It, mm. um, well, it was a baby, but I don't know why I said it wasn't a baby. Yeah. I got a baby. I got a baby and it was fine. I raised, I raised, I, I did the thing that they all recommend where you keep it in a tub with a bowl of water um, for humidity. And um, I kept it in my bathroom and I just like mm-hmm. kept a room heater in my bathroom. So I, anytime yeah. I took a shower, it was humid in there. And um, now I have like seven um, green tree pythons and they're all, um, they're all wild caught. I have this thing about like, I have wild caught animals and I feel like, Oh, I, I, I feel like wild caught is, I I'm not against it, but I feel like I, I owe it to the animal to try to reproduce it in captivity. If you're going to get wild caught and I've been an utter failure at the green tree python so far. (laughs) Well, you know, those are, uh, not exactly easy <laughs> well yeah, main, mainly mainly the pro- my main problem is is that um all the babies i get grow up to be males oh uh, sure so oh, i yeah, just yeah. finally got a female about two years ago but she's a um long-term captive um wild caught mm-hmm. and um she supposedly is like five was five years old when i got her that's the but the person who mm-hmm. I bought her from told me that was told to him. And mm-hmm. um, I think she's much older than that. She's really big. She has a lot of scars on her from being yeah. in the wild. Yeah. And um, so I'm not beating myself up that I haven't been able to get 
her to lay eggs because yeah. I think I've I've thought I thought long and hard about it because everyone says that um, if you're going to get a wild caught um, python or I don't I don't know as much about colubrids but if you're going to get a wild caught snake um, especially the females you want to get a a young one yeah mm-hmm. and right. I've, I I think that I I've come up with a theory after reading. Um, Rick Shine's uh, book, So Many Snakes, So, so Little Time, yeah. um, that one of the pr- things that um, snakes do when they hatch out is they imprint on their nest. Mm-hmm. The females do. The males don't. But the females, they imprint on their nest. They remember, like, this is what a nest is like. This is the kind of mm-hmm. area that I need to lay. And that's why once you get an an established um line it's a lot easier to get the f2s and to lay because they say they are in their their mind the captivity Mm -hmm. that they're in is their what it's like right this is what it's like where you lay that's my theory (laughs) and that's that's my my uh way that I make myself feel better that I can't get that <laughs> snake to lay eggs. <laughs> I, well, I, you know, I get her to like swell, like she'll start to swell and I'm like, Oh, she's mm-hmm. going to do it. And I'll, and she'll, she'll start to swell. She'll breed. Mm-hmm. And then she'll just shut down. She won't eat. She oh, yeah, it's like, she's sure. like, no, yeah. there's some, like my body's telling me and she's like, Nope, I'm not going to do this. There's nowhere to nest. That's right. what I think is happening to her body. Like, cause I'm thinking there's like a few, there's like, they need in order to be successful, they need um, the right amount of food and nutrients. They need the proper amount of energy, like heat. Yeah. They can't lay eggs mm-hmm. if it's too cold. Mm-hmm. And then they need a safe place to lay the eggs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's so it's, it's, it's interesting. You said some really, really cool, cool things there. Um, a lot of stuff that I felt like inclined, like I wanted to respond to um, because I, I think that that imprinting thing, I, I think that there is something in, in that in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, like for example, um, I've been breeding Euromastix Thomas I for a long time and mm-hmm. still to this day, uh, I do. It's really difficult for me to get those damn Thomas I to lay in the nest boxes that all my other euros lay in. Like they don't want to lay in it. They want to lay. They want to dig. They want to have like a flat space where they can generate the burrow. Whereas mm. you know, like Ornata, Yemenensis, Flavifasciata, Philbii, Ocelata, all of those guys w- will go into a box through a mm. tube, and I don't know what that's about. I don't understand why they don't mind. But the Thomasi just just they don't want to use the box. It doesn't mean they won't ever, but they just aren't that psyched about it. They're just not like nah. They'll like avoid the box for a long time to the point where I'll get sketched out and be like, all right, I'm just going to put you in a big lay bin and let you do your thing, you know. But then I tried to do the same. So what I did this year was I filled up this huge. I filled up one of my six foot pools with just dirt and sand and topsoil just this huge, huge six foot space. And I was like, all right, let's go and see if, if the, the euros like this, the, I put a Thomas eye in there first 
to see if she would, you know, use it. And, uh, uh, you know, it went okay. She laid okay. And it was just fine. But then I put an ornata in there and the ornate didn't want to, didn't dig at all. Just had no interest in digging in this space. Didn't register any of it as viable nesting space. And then I put her right back into an enclosure with a nest box and she went right in the box, started digging and laid her eggs in a day or two. And it was just like, okay, you didn't like that. It's such a weird thing that they didn't like that. Whereas a Thomas, I would like that. I don't get it. I don't know how that happens. And uh, maybe, so maybe there's something to that imprinting thing, um, at least in terms of nest. It also makes me think of things like, like um, rattlesnakes that actually have like rookery sites that they, that they pass down, you know, over generations, you know, I think of like, you know, rattlesnake hibernacula and, and rookery sites for me, it's like within the, you know, within the culture of rattlesnakes, those are like sacred sites, you know, it's like these, these things that they are returning to generation after generation. And who knows how long you go ahead. What is a rookery site? Sounds like a chest. So a rookery, so a rookery site is where the female rattlesnakes go to give birth, and they actually will do so communally um, in some populations. And so, wow. and they'll actually even there's some amazing like research. Um, um, I forget her, Melissa Amarello of um, Advocates for Snake Preservation, and Emily Taylor. Um, who's at Cal Poly. Um, they've both done some really awesome, um, studies about this and some research about this, but essentially they like, they'll, they'll like the female rattlesnakes will, will go to these sites. They'll, they'll have babies, you know, they'll give birth. Um, and then they'll actually guard the babies for the first couple weeks, few weeks of their lives before the babies disperse. And they'll even like, They've even kind of um, identified like like babysitting behavior, essentially, where like one female will be kind of like on duty and one will like go and retreat or um, or go hunt or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like the up. females that actually give birth to the young that spring, yeah. they're, they need to go eat. So exactly. the, the younger ones that didn't give birth are the ones that have enough energy. They don't need to yeah. go eat they'll stick around and kind of like guard the babies. Wow. So cool. And like, they'll go out and sun themselves. They have video of it. Like you can watch it yeah. on YouTube. It's this snake ad or pr- snake yeah. preservation. Advocates I, I for pre- snake preservation. Yeah, that's right. And um, they'll, the babies will come out and like coil up on the adult. Cause it's, yeah. they're, Everyone who does uh, rattlesnake research pretty much says baby rattlesnakes are just food for everything. Like their venom doesn't oh, yeah. really protect them that much. Yeah, that's definitely oh. true. But um, wow. but all of this is just to say that like, I think that there's so much going on in terms of like the chemosensory capacity of reptiles that we don't understand yet. You know, I mean, especially in things like snakes, you know, that have the divernoise di- gland and um the what you're not the not the not the juvenile the jacobson, gland. Um, the, jacobson? the J- jacobson's organ yeah sorry the juvenile gland is a something else entirely but um it's a venom gland yeah it's the venom gland, fang. but the jacobson's oh, organ thank you i'm so glad that lisa knows more than i do to s- me on this i know i can't pronounce the words i'm like i'll just say the first <laughs> letter and then you'll remember the word right um 
Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Poor anyway, Phil. It's just, He's it's like amazing. all this snake nerd talk. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I love it. Um, something I was actually going to say a moment ago, but I forgot to, is that um, one of my great shames in life is that I've never bred any snake species ever. I've only ever bred lizards, never messed with so them. I, I love, and here's the thing. Snakes were my first love for sure. Like the first things I, I ever bought, the things that I was first things I was ever interested in were snakes, far snakes and salamanders, mind you. Um, yes. Yeah. And I've made that joke about getting into breeding Mississippi slimy salamanders. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm still going to do that. No, <laughs> but um, snakes were my first love in that regard. The first thing I was ever catching and I still have just never, I've just never done it. I, you know, like call it lack of commitment, call it ignorance, call it failure. I mean, you name it. I don't, I don't really, I don't mind. I, I'm, I'm comfortable admitting my well, You were also, you were also sabotaged because you had tricolor hognose snakes for a little bit, which are the easiest snakes in the world to breed. Yep. And then you had to part with them because of the regulations there. So. Yeah. Because Colorado's regulations around rear fanged are stupid, but yes, I had <laughs> to do that. Um, I've wanted to just try messing around with some of the local garter snakes or the local hogs, right? Because mm -hmm. they're all fairly straightforward for the most part, as I yeah. understand it, and would fit in very well, would be nice to to play with. But um yeah, yeah I don't know. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, get back do to you when you um build your nest boxes, do you use the same substrate that they nest in year over year? Like you'll get the eggs out or do you toss it out? No, I change it, um, but only like, so that's a great question. Um, it depends. Okay. So let me say it depends. Okay. Because some years I'll experiment with different stuff. Like for example, for years, mm -hmm. I was using coconut fiber for, for the nest box inside the Euro pens because it's lightweight. So it was easier to move mm -hmm. the boxes from one place to another. Problem is, no matter how hard I tried and how hard I packed it in there and whatever, I got a lot of collapsing burrows and a lot of animals holding their eggs longer than they should, right? So mm -hmm. I switched to a mixture of uh, play sand and topsoil, and that has yielded way better burrow integrity and way better um, just just everything, just better everything. The, and the animals are laying their eggs much faster. Like I've actually reduced my gestation time by using that bedding. Um, or not even gestation time, a time between mating and laying their eggs, right? So I guess it's the same thing. But regardless, um, I will reuse it for several years, except in situations where eggs have been popped or damaged where the in, internal contents of the eggs have got have gotten into the sand because then I worry about mold or contamination of some regard. Like, you know, I, I don't know. It's probably like a... And that might be a cue for them to be like, well, this isn't a good nest site anymore. Right. Totally. Yeah. No, yeah. There's just all kinds of stuff that could be in there. And so I will change it in that way. But most of the time I try to reuse it for sure, especially now that I'm using the other thing I do to, I did is I upgraded nest boxes. So I went from these sort of 10 gallon Rubbermaid totes to these much larger, heavy, big Rubbermaid totes and uh, getting a little bit better results as from that too. Anyway. Yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. This past season, um, 
still talking about um, communal nesting, um, just from watching um, the Australian uh, herp collectors, you know, how they they Mm -hmm. call if there's a venomous snake that they want to be removed. Um, You can watch all, they all, most of them um, post on Facebook or any of the social media. And there was like two different um, nest sites found where they were, they were like, 400 eggshells in like these hollowed out tree limbs that had fallen down mm-hmm. in wow. a storm. And it showed that it showed that the snakes, it must've been generations, like the daughters and okay. the granddaughters were going yeah. back to lay there. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sad because that. it's like, like they collected the eggs and hatched the snakes and let them go. But I'm like, that was a, very important part of their habitat that they just lost but both times it was like a storm that had blown it down it it happens and then they have to find new spots but you know yeah when but when you see stuff like that you're like okay this is like adding to my theory about this like communal nesting and learning and um that book just like really it, you know, when you read something that really changes your thinking, you're like, yeah. oh, I, I didn't even think about stuff like that. Like, um, I've been nerding out about um, how, so we know that some reptiles um, that can get be sex determinate, like yep. you can get mm-hmm. sex determination based on the temperature of the egg. Yep. Well, yeah. I knew that, like I had heard about that, like it's uh, sea turtles, right? That's the most common yeah. one you hear about. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I don't know enough about uh, sea turtle natural history to be like, okay, well, why, how does that help the sea turtle to be able to do that? And I didn't even know how it worked. Like, in the egg, suddenly the chromosomes change. Like, what is that? Mm. Like, how does that happen? But so from that book, I found out for the first time that it's not really, their chromosomes don't change. It's just their phenotype that change. So you'll have an egg that's like, I don't know how turtles do it, but we'll use the bearded dragons because I found out that bearded dragons can do it also. But what happens is, a bearded dragon will lay an egg, but if that year it's really hot or something, the eggs get too hot. The the males, the male eggs mm-hmm. will turn, some of them will turn to female. And so when they hatch out, they're, they have the female sex organs and they are a female. They'll reproduce as a female, but they're bigger. They're more bullish you know that they they lay more eggs and they um have a hotter temperature and and um so if you're thinking about it if but if you looked at them genetically Mm -hmm. you would see male sex chromosomes so they're a male so interesting they're genetically a male but they're phenotypically a female And it's really cool, though, because if you think about it, if they because you guys were talking about how like coyotes Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. to adapt to being like hunted, that they have more babies. And, you Mm -hmm. know, you can say that that's an easy thing to solve because, well, there's not as much competition for food. So then the females Mm -hmm. can just 
afford to have a ton of babies because there's food everywhere. Mm -hmm. But with the, with the reptiles, it's even cooler because it's an environment like it's a hot, it's going to be a hot year. There might be a drought. You might need a Mm -hmm. reptile that can withstand higher heat and still, you know, survive and go on to reproduce. Cause I don't know if the, the um, genetic, the females that Mm -hmm. are female and genetically female, if they can, if they were living in that hot environment, if their eggs would be, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Totally, totally. Also they can lay more eggs in a hotter, more hostile environment. So that will give their babies, like they'll have a higher survival rate, maybe like, yeah, it's the same thing. Um, So that book is what got me interested in that because there's um, these slaty gray snakes mm-hmm. yeah. that um, they'll lay eggs and they'll lay egg. They lay their They go back to the same nesting site, but if it's because the Australian environment is really um, volatile, like they have droughts and they have floods. Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to withstand that kind of env- environment. And there's boom years and bust years. So what happens is the reptiles will totally change their physiology. Like they'll yeah. have the same mm-hmm. genetics, but they're so phenotypically plastic that they can change how they grow. They they can grow up to be a small snake that is really can, can conserve food yeah. or they can grow to be this huge snake that eats everything and has a ton of babies as fast as they can. But then when the drought comes, they're the first one to die because they need so much more food just to stay alive. Right, right, of course. And the um, what happens is with those slaty gray snakes, when they lay the eggs on a year when it's dry, the so they change the females will either the female eggs will either die or they'll change to male not their chromosomes, just their sex, like their phenotypic sex. And then they'll, cause what happens is a lot of snakes, the females stick around, like they stay in the general area where the nest is Mm -hmm. while the males disperse much farther. They don't come back to that area. They Mm -hmm. go out. So if you're laying a nest and it's a dry drought year, you don't want a bunch of females to like come out and try. They're going to die anyways, but your males, mm-hmm. at least maybe they have a chance to go out and find food somewhere else. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Isn't that yeah. so cool? Like yeah, it gives yeah, me yeah, goosebumps. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. And, and you Just think about that kind of stuff and how that affects what we're doing in her pediculture, we might be triggering some of these things that we just don't even know what we're we doing. No and that's why, <laughs> you know, usually when, um, Bill, you're arguing like, we can't, we're not going to be able, we're not going to, um, protect what's in the wild. This is not a wild thing that we're doing. Yeah. And other people are like, no, we're the invisible arc. We're, we, we're here to protect. Yeah. And, but it's, we don't even know what we're doing. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no, totally. Yeah, no, 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 no. You, so I have, yes, you, I feel like th- there's a lot. But just so you know, in that argument, I feel like, why can't we do both? Like, yeah, we can yeah, try no, our totally. best to protect, but also accept that 
I mean, we're gonna fail, but we're no, gonna still yeah. try. We're yes. gonna try hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Like, so this came up a little bit in the show we did a few weeks ago with Eric Haycraft, which was like, you know, there's a lot about the way we're learning about the wild by way of captive observation and propagation, right? So reverse engineering what's going on in the wild by seeing what happens when we do it in captivity and then saying, oh, you know, there were these missing pieces, so X happened. Or, oh, we saw this happen in this context. If you plug that those results into a wild context, you get, oh, that reveals something to us about what these things are doing in the wild. Oh, you know, we understand now that these animals do X or Y in the wild because we realize if we don't provide those things for them in captivity, then we get problems or something. You know, you you name it, right? And I very much feel like we can have our cake and eat it too. Like there's absolutely no reason we can't have a herpetoculture that has fucking the, the most ridiculous uh, what do you, what do you, you know, we'll call, what are we like a, a frappuccino, uh, triple, <laughs> triple inverted head for head for butt ball. Python. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, and we can also have some of the most um, conserved uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, true to form um, refined like, like articulately, very articulately and skillfully raised dart frogs that are indistinguishable from the wild counterpart. Like, I think that's totally fair. Like we can have both of those things, you know, like in the same way that I can have a golden retriever and Roy can have a wolf dog. Like, like, I don't think those two things are in, are incompatible in any way, shape or form. And like, uh, you know, I feel like almost everything we do, um, the more we zoom out and get like a macro view, the more we we start to say, oh, well, there's actually a lot more at play here than we realized, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is one of the which is one of the reasons I'm always so hesitant. Like this is this is something that comes up a lot for me just within Euromastics in particular. And my friend, he'll totally understand that I'm talking about him. I'm not going to name him or make, you know, because I'm not giving him a hard time. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. He's another good Euro breeder, really great guy. But I'm sure he gets really irritated with me because, you know, he'll send me a message that'll say something like, I think Ornate's insert statement here, mm-hmm. or I think Yemenensis insert statement here. And even if it's the most innocuous thing that I could just look past and say, yeah, maybe I'll have to be like, you know, actually, sorry to say, but neither you nor I have the sufficient sample size of in terms of total population of animals, sufficient number of years and generations doing this to say anything about ornates or Yemenenses as a whole. I'm sorry, we just don't have it. You don't have it. Mm-hmm. I don't have it. And and even then, even if I had thousands of examples, I wouldn't feel confident because the context is so different. And we're talking about a set of animals that come from one fucking place. You, you know, you might pull Yemenensis from 45 miles to the west of wherever you, you pulled the ones that we have from, and you might get different stuff. 
You know, you might get something slightly different or some various change. For years and years and years, people said Euromastix philbii are so hard to breed because they just don't ever want to lay their eggs and they, you know, like they all tend to die egg bound and all this stuff. Mm. And yet here we are. And Euromastix philbii seem to be one of the ones that it's actually a little bit easier to breed out of nowhere for some reason. Is that because somebody cracked the code and all of a sudden the nest boxes that we're offering them are that much better? No, it's, it's probably just a pure accident of individual, right? Like it just so happens that these five individuals over here had less of a problem laying in that nest box. And these five individuals over here had a big, big problem with laying in that nest box. And it doesn't mean anything about Philby as a whole, right? It's like, yeah, so, uh, Roy, I, I want to let you because I, I, there's, I could just go on for hours. Uh. No, no, I'm curious, to, <laughs> curious, Lisa, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I, I was thinking like it might not be just those five. Like maybe it's the combination of a lot of little things that we do differently than what we originally did that just makes it a little bit easier for those five that finally decided to lay in there was like, fine, I guess I'll lay in this crappy nest box you gave me. (laughs) Right. Right. Totally. I mean, these, it's like, even, even the, the, the stuff that I have that has been doing very well for me over the last 10 years, whether it's the ornates, the Thomas I, you know, I've done fine with most of the euros, but those two species in particular, for one reason or another, I just tend to have had better success with. There's nothing that I can point to that I'm doing that's unique, not even close. Like, you know, like it, and I, and I mean that, like I say that in an effort to suggest that like more people can do this, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, there's nothing like I, for Christ's sake, uh, I have them in, in cages that are made of cut up kiddie pools, <laughs> lights, you know, with lights suspended with zip ties. Like you could take a picture of my shop and transplant it back in 1988. And it's, it's the, it's, it's the same tech, man. I'm doing the same <laughs> fucking thing. I'm, you know, like I, I am very slow to change or to respond to updated technology or update updated tools you know mm-hmm. I, I i like the duct tape and zip tie approach in some regard and you know um i don't know actually i feel like i'm kind of getting off on a little bit of a tangent here and i'm a little <laughs> you know like which is fine i mean i know we're all about tangents but uh maybe it's getting just a little bit a little bit um unrefined or like not so solid my thought my train of thought so i i feel like maybe i should stop here for my own sake otherwise it'll get a little obscure um i'd like to all right yeah let's bounce it around here (laughs) well okay so lisa you've you've shared a little bit of of some of the species that you're already working with but i'm curious if you could just like kind of generally just describe what are the species you're working with right now um I would say the two main species that I, well, besides the green tree pythons that I haven't had, well, I I feel confident that I will eventually get eggs from a green tree python. I don't know if I'll hatch them, but I think I will. But um, but the two main species that I feel the most confident about are the um, southern white lip pythons. I've had good success with them, and um, 
than African fire skinks, like, which are a very simple, I think they make mm-hmm. a really great pet and they're really simple to keep. Just get a, I've, I'm actually keeping mine in an old um, fish tank that I found on the side of the road that someone was throwing out. Nice. And um, wow. I have, I have like some substrate in there and some pothos and some snake plants and some ho- uh, hollowed out cork bark hides and mopani wood. And they're just fun. It's like, it's, it feels like keeping a fish tank. Cause you know, I feed mm-hmm. them and watch them like run around and eat the food and they lay the eggs in there and the babies just come out in the um, spring and um, are actually in the summer, I should say. And um this last summer, I, um, I, after I saw a few babies in there, I dug out the eggs because, um, I, some, some of the eggs, I found, a, find a bunch of spoiled eggs in the soil mm-hmm. when I dig it up. And, um, so this year I just took them out just to experiment to see, like, I'm going to see if I, if they'll hatch in the, in a little, um, I just put them in a little, um, cottage cheese container with some sphagnum mm-hmm. moss and, put them in my um, snake room where it's usually pretty warm and they all hatched out fine. And I put it, they, they, they live in the tank with their parents and it's really fun to watch because the um, parents are really protective. Well, not protective, but they like hanging out with their parents. Like I'll come home from work and the babies will literally be sitting on top of the parents. Oh, nice. It's like the cutest thing ever. (laughs) Yeah. And, and then other than that, I um I I kind of um thought I wanted to get into breeding some colubrids. I have um a couple of um the cave the um Ridley eye, the uh-huh. cave dwelling rat snakes. Yeah. And um, but I lost my female and so I just have my male in the enclosure now and um I'm kind of thinking I'm, it's kind of a sad spot, like for me, because the female was a really nice animal and, um, it was an accident that happened. So it was, I feel really guilty about it. It was a mistake that I made. And so I, I kind of just think I'm going to let him go. I apologize. I'm not trying to interrupt you, Lisa, but I would just tell you, I've had so many, I've had so many fucking mistakes like mm-hmm. it's part of the, it is part of the game. It is part of the game. It sucks when it happens and we always do our best to try not to let that happen. But for Christ's sake, it happens. Okay. Like it happens. I just wanted, I know, you know, and I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes I get tear. I, I'm not going to tell this story because I might start crying. <laughs> like it te- makes yeah. me tear up. Like it, it's pretty sad. And, um, so I don't know. I'm kind of, it, it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back because there is a big difference between keeping colubrids and pythons. And I feel yeah. like I'm more of a python person. Um, it's, they're just more relaxed to me. Like mm-hmm. I check on them every day, but it's not like I have to feed them twice a week, clean them twice a week. It's, it's a lot more labor keeping colubrids. Um, yeah. I do keep those rat snakes. I did have them in, in a, um, a, but it's a 
well, it's a naturalistic enclosure with um, really deep mm-hmm. substrate and it's planted. And mm-hmm. I never had to clean that enclosure, but that just causes other problems in my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, keeping an enclosure like that in the house, if you're not cleaning it, there's something that's mm-hmm. going to clean it and it might end up flying around your house. And you're going to end yeah. up with like moths and different types of flies and so yeah. it causes other problems, but I was, you know, it doesn't smell in it. It's really cool at first. You're like, whoa, this is awesome. I'm going to do this with all my snakes. And then you're like, well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I actually yeah, thought about putting nematodes in the soil to try to kill some of those, um, the flies that go in there the, to kill the um, larvae before they hatch out. Um, then I'll, I, I know that I'll, I'll end up having to clean out more poop, but I mean, it's kind of like, I haven't done it yet, but I'm, I'm not, I'm kind of in that in-between stage where I'm like, should I try to get another female or should I mm-hmm. sell this male? I'm not sure. So the discernment. Yeah. Yeah. So tricky. It's always so hard yeah. when you're in those situations for sure. Yeah. You know, so I had a, a question about the, the, the fire skinks in particular um, and maybe, well, it's, it's, I guess it's like around the fire skinks um, because first of all, those things are bad to the bone. And I think it's really cool when I see anybody messing with those things. I think it's probably not unfair to say that fire skinks are one of those species that is somewhat, let's call it, call it, you know, call it overlooked, call it common, call common, it yeah. less, less, less popular. You know, I don't know what, I don't want to, I don't like to use those terms because it feels like a little bit, you know, like, like diminishing of, of their coolness, uh, you know, like in, in my mind, there's no difference between a fire skink and a Boland's Python. They're, they're both awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're both, they're both awesome. And I don't think one should necessarily carry an, like a, some greater inherent value. So I just kind of want that to be clear, but yeah. With that in mind, um, how do you think about or conceptualize working with a species and propagating a species that is, that does, at least at this point in time, kind of fall under that category of common or overlooked or, un, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it? Like, yeah. You know? Well, I think, I, I don't know if I'm going to answer the question the way you meant it, but. Oh, fine. It, answer it I think I think about that with all of them, like like now I'm going to have to find a home for these animals now. And that's I feel like the whole thing is kind of stressful because you get the eggs and then you really want the eggs to hatch. You know, you worry about your female when she's when she's gravid, you're you're worrying the whole time. And then you get these babies and you're like, oh, this is awesome. But then you're like, oh, now I have to find a good home for these animals. So I I do end up giving like I give the fire skinks away. I did. I did sell. uh, I sold three of them at the show. Um, It was like a really good, you know, beginner pet price. It was, you know, it it wasn't a, like, this is a really fancy, you know, I'm not trying to say, oh, you should buy this and breed it. And then you can sell them. I just told people, these are really great um, pets. Like, you know, there's some Mm -hmm. animals that you're like, this is an easy animal to keep. I don't think they don't need, they don't need a lot of heat. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I did. I generally didn't think they basked, but I actually caught one of the babies basking today. He, wow. he climbed all the way. Well, I, I don't know if I don't know how to sex them. Like I'm not. So he climbed all the way up to the top of, I have a piece of mapani in there that look, it looks like an old tree stump and it goes all, almost all the way to the top. And the tanks, um, about two, it's, t- it's a tall tank. I think it's either 24 or 18 inches tall. And, um, he was up at the top, like sitting up there just chilling. That's like awesome. skinks can climb, like they can jump too. When I first hatched out some babies, um, they all, I put them in us. I took them out because I'm like, oh, the parents are going to eat them because they're going to react to the movement and accidentally eat their babies. I just thought I didn't know anything. Like I didn't, had never talked to anyone who kept them. So I took the babies out and I set them up in a little sweater box. And when I got home, all the babies were out, gone. They had somehow jumped out of the box and I mean it was a short box but I did not think these little tiny lizards could jump out of that box and I did find one and and then I found another one that my cat had gotten to and the third one I never Mm -hmm. found there was three of them but um so then I was like I'm just gonna have to put them in with their parents because I don't Mm -hmm. know what else to do with them and we'll see what happens and I was glad I did because it's really cute. It's amazing to watch them together. Like their dad, especially like acts like he loves them. Like he'll go, they like to hide under that Mupani log. And like, I never used to see him under that Mupani log, but ever since they had the babies, he's under there with them. It's cute. (laughs) Yeah. But I feel, I feel like, yeah, you're going to have to try to find a home for them because there does come a point when they hit like a certain age where the parents start chasing them and nipping their tails. So after a cer- certain point, they chase them. And I, I actually, I wasn't a hundred percent cause I was down to two last year and I noticed the female was chasing one and the male was always chasing the other one. And mm-hmm. so I took those and I set them up in a separate fish tank and um, wait until I could find homes for them. And then um, after they started to grow, they started to have like one was a little larger than the other one. And yeah. so I think maybe the male was chasing the male and the female was chasing the male, but I can't say for certain but I kind of have a hunch that that's what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, that's a, a fun thing to do too. I've taken euros when they've just hatched and thrown them in with their parents, you know, or at least one of their parents, because I house most of my adults solo for most of the year. And uh, they, it's always interesting to see the ones that tolerate that have like, oh yeah, babies, this is about normal. I expected this about now, you know, or, mm-hmm. or the ones where they're like, you know, you can see they're like a little, little wary of them and do the, do a little bit of a hula and maybe run away. Like the adults will run away from babies. They're like, ah, <laughs> which is hilarious to think about, um, you know, like there's even other really bizarre behaviors that I've, that I've, I'm sure I've mentioned before, but like, for example, Euromastix nigriventris, the Moroccan euros, the babies of those damn animals are absolutely vicious with one another. They mm-hmm. hate each other and just have no interest in hanging out together and will fight and will chase each other. And 
Like if you're not careful, that entire disbar complex of Euromastics, the, the babies will kill each other. Like it's, it, it happens. Wow. It has happened. Whereas, you know, some of these ones like Ornata, some Thomas, I, a few others, they can be very tolerant of each other under identical conditions for a long time. Um, now, as far as like tolerance with adults, I, I don't really know. That's maybe a little bit of, I, I haven't been bold enough to try that for very long. It just freaks me out. The whole idea of it makes me a little uncomfortable. Maybe I'll do a little bit more of it this year, but so I'd love to, if, if it's okay, I, I'd like to maybe, um, kind of unpack some of that thinking a little bit more specifically around like the sort of the more, you know, let's let, again, let's call it common species. Right. Um, when you say that you're thinking about them a little bit differently because it's like, Oh, I have to find homes for those. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess what I w- would be curious to know is like, what are your thoughts around um, what, where's the utility or the like, what what is the goal or the purpose behind propagating something like that? And I and I say this not because I'm critical in any way, shape, or form. The opposite, exactly. Actually, like I think the fact that that there's someone like you who's taking the time to to propagate some of these really interesting and more, let's say, common or you know whatever. I hate. I even hate. I just hate saying it. But um, <laughs> like. Like what? What do you think the where? Where do you think the value lies in 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 messing with stuff like that and breeding stuff like that and like what kind of example do you think that that sets for the trade as a whole and like do you think more people should be doing that or do you know do you think it's maybe something that we should be careful about doing if there's not like a super high demand for that animal or I mean, I, I'm just really curious what you think about all of this stuff. Well, I I actually like think that I, I don't really feel. Maybe I misspoke. I actually feel like they're a really great pet. Mm-hmm. And so if we could like breed them and have them in pet stores instead of some of the things that we see in pet shops, like igua- like or or like the wild caught iguanas or um the wild caught anything that they bring in, a wild caught um fire skink like you can get a captive bred one and it's the cost of like I don't do anything all I do is have a tank with a male and a female I don't Mm. have to do anything and they're simple they are like the simplest lizard that I could think of to keep so if someone wanted a, a fire skink they should be able to get a captive bred one Mm-hmm. and not have to get a wild caught one just because they're cheap. Like I, I think that it, if someone gets a wild caught animal, then you get problems that animals get sick. I see it all the time. There's a, a Facebook group and people are always saying my fryer skinks is sick. Yeah. And I always am like, I really, I imagine that that's a wild caught animal because Unless you're really, really neglect, like you would have to really like give them no heat. And like, I, those animals are simple to keep. I just have a heat pad. I have the lights. The lights are mainly for the plants because like I said, I didn't really see that much basking, Mm -hmm. but 
I think even if they didn't have fancy lights, that animals would still do really well as long as they were supplementing their diet with um, some sort of calcium and mineral oil or something. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just the value in that and not having to do wild caught and then make people think, oh, reptiles are hard to keep. They're, you know, they get them and they just die. I mean, that's a value. I I think that's a value. Um, And not, I mean, Maybe that's the idea that a reptile should cost like a like an animal, a $50 animal. Like maybe that's degrading to the animal to say that to have a $50 pet. But, you know, rats aren't people get pet rats and they aren't $50 usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they still love them. You know, people still love their pet rats yeah. that aren't 50. Like you don't have to pay thousands of dollars to love your animal because if you do then maybe you're not a good person or something you know what I mean (laughs) yeah no I mean it's it's interesting I know I've said this before on other shows where I've been like I just where there's a part of me that feels like it's wrong that you can go to a store and buy a $20 lizard like it's just feels weird where but what you're saying makes a lot of sense which is you know you can get other pets for cheaper that people still take care of and don't think of as disposable and then along that same line of thinking, like people have kids and spend thousands of dollars, millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars having children and don't know, and don't take good care of their kids either. So it's like it, mm-hmm. the price tag isn't necessarily the, the, the determining factor. I guess it was sort of more of a feeling about how challenging it is to see animals that are so complicated and have so many high level needs that, can be purchased by some kid for 20 bucks, you know, like yeah. and, and at, the, at the time when I was talking about that, I was talking about like Cuban and Cuban night and old. And I, you know, it's just like remarkable that you can go buy one for 25 bucks at a pet shop mm-hmm. and that there's no barrier between some kid who's going to buy it. The only thing standing between that kid with $20 in his hand and the, this animal suffering is like the person who's motivated to sell that animal to the kid with the $20 yeah. who's going to put it in a fucking shoebox, who's not going to treat it well. And that animal is just going to suffer for eight months before it dies. You know, that, that stuff is really challenging. And it's like, you know, one of the things that I love to see in people who are say, you know, who are breeding something like a fire skink or any other, uh, you know, obscure, but, but, common-ish reptile Mm -hmm. is like i think sometimes you can take anything any any reptile that that is out there any one of them and just display them in a way that gives them a little bit of pride and dignity and it's like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're gonna have people treating them with a little more respect or people treating them with a little more regard or a little more effort a little more time like just setting the example sets Mm -hmm. a better stage for an improved baseline of care in the future for those animals, you know, um, it's, it's, it's because it is frustrating. And, and sometimes I wonder, you know, for example, you know, as another example, um, ornate euros, which are obviously the thing I breed the most of in general. Um, these are something that were like, hadn't been brought in in huge numbers for several years and had been kept at a pretty low price tag 
for a long time. And then the second I started breeding them in larger numbers and selling them for higher price tags because they're captive bred, all of a sudden that was incentive for a whole mess of wholesalers and importers to bring in a couple truckloads of them and sell them at the same price that I was selling my captive bred offspring. And now it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's like, I told myself for years, oh, I'm, I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm helping out. I'm making it so I'm making it so there's not a big demand on the wild populations because you can just buy one from me. Right. And it seems to have had the opposite effect in some way. Mm -hmm. So that's a very awkward feeling. And I don't know what to think about that. I don't know. I don't know how to, how to parse that apart and, and, and make sense of, 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 of that part of my argument anymore. It just doesn't, you know, cause I don't think it applies. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't think propagating wild or propagating captive bred animals is, is a good way of reducing demand. It's just like when there's no, when there's no, uh, governing body or whatever, like there's no one sitting in between the buyer and the seller that says, Hey, these, you know, captive bred ornate Euromastics or captive bred Euromastics JRI that are being sold by, you know, and you name any wholesaler or, you know, major reseller, they're, they're not captive bred. You, you're buying a wild caught animal. Like it, yeah. it's, I don't know. It's a, uh, I find that very difficult. I find yeah. that very hard to reckon with. I feel like the same thing kind of happened with white lip pythons. Mm-hmm. When I got mm-hmm. mine, um, they were cap- they were um, wild caught. Um, the seller that I got him from, um, he had him for six months. He was totally transparent. He didn't tell me that they were captive bred um, because very few people were doing it at that time. Um, but when I got him, then he was $200. You cannot get a wet. If you're going to get a wild caught white lip python, especially a Southern. Well, I think you can get the Northerns for about 500 up. Mm -hmm. And then the Southerns, depending on who you get them from, you could pay just thousands, like, People are asking for thousands of dollars for a a wild caught one. And it was kind of the same thing where they weren't coming in because they were cheaper animals. They have a bad reputation for being tenacious and, you know, just uh, hard to keep because they bite you or musk you. And um, then so many, none were coming in and, people would see pictures of them and be like, wow, what is that? I want one of those. And right. there it create the vacancy of them being so rare. And people are like, Oh, this it's rare too. It's beautiful and rare. And yeah. then it started creating this hype around them. And so the price shot up. Mm-hmm. And so I was keeping mine. I had had mine for about four years and I, I was wanting another male because I had heard that the females can like attack the males. And so I thought, well, I, w- I want to breed these and I want another male. And they fight some finally came in and it was $2,000 for a wild caught male. 
Wow. And I got him. I got him. I, I bought, I, I was one of the idiots that if we had all just like, everyone just said, that's ridiculous. I am not, if everyone had just said, I'm not going to pay that. But I of course was like, Oh crap. I haven't seen one of these available in so long. I better get it now. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. you know, who knows if I'll ever see one again. So yeah. I paid the price <laughs> and then they were like, Oh, well they'll pay this price. So now then, and then the, um, you know, the, the exporters over in Indonesia were like, what? They're paying $2,000 for these? And so then yes. they were like, no, we need our money too. So then they, they're getting, more, they're asking more money for them. So it right. created this big snowball effect where they're just way overpriced. Right. And it oh, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. So even if you start breeding them, it doesn't, it's like it doesn't stop the demand. Like they, they're like, mm-hmm. oh, they're breeding them and people are paying this price. And mm-hmm. then it creates more like a, it almost like it fire creates like a fireball market. Like it just starts getting snowballing is what I meant. Not fireball. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I, I get it. No, it, and it's, it's true. It's like, it's one of those things where it, it makes me wonder like, where is the, sort of crux or the like inflection point to focus on that would increase the demand on captive bred animals of a specific variety. Like I think so far, the only thing I've seen is just better education, right? Like in the last like three years, three, four years, the number of people who come to me specifically saying, I would like to come to you because I want a captive bred animal. Like I just, I'm willing to wait and take the time and buy a captive bred animal. That, that number has gone up a great deal. Um, Mm -hmm. With that said, there's still the same number of people who come to me who say, Hey, I want to buy an ornate. And I say, that's great. I would love to sell you one. I don't have any at the moment. Here's the way you can keep up with my availability. Here's the way, here's how much they're going to cost. And then four days later, they send me a message saying, Hey, I found one at underground reptile. And it's, they say it's captive bread and here's, here's what it is. Here's what it's housed in. Now, can you help me? You know? And it's like, yeah. All right. Well, look, I mean, I'm still going to help you because I care more about that animal doing well than I care about you giving me your business. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but, and, and like, you know, maybe 50% of the time you get, there's like a conversion rate where they have troubles with that animal. They were given the wrong information. Who knows what? And that person then, you know, through your helping them becomes a customer or becomes a longtime keeper or thinks about them in a different way, you know, you name it. But like, in my mind, the, like, it seems like there would conceivably be some, some point in the trajectory from I got into reptiles and I bought an ornate Euromastics somewhere in there, we can get in the way and say, Hey, don't buy these other ones, right? Don't buy these animals or whatever. And, and, and then, and even then that brings another problem that presents other problems too. So let's say somebody brings in 3000 ornates into the country. And yet we've spent all this time telling people not to buy them. So what, we're just supposed to let all those animals fester and die just because they're wild caught? Like, no, it should have gone one step further and say, hey, don't even buy them. Don't order them from Jordan or from 
wherever they're from, right? Like, just don't do it. But, you know, at the same time, you know, there's so many parts, so many places in this narrative where we can say, okay, this doesn't quite work. This doesn't quite work. This doesn't quite work. This doesn't quite work. I don't, I don't, I don't really have a great answer for all that stuff. I don't really know exactly what we're supposed to do with all of that, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, cause at every point, you know, if we say, oh, you shouldn't even be importing them from the wild. It's like, well, 90% of 90, all of my adults, every last one of my original breeding adults were wild caught animals. So I can do it, but you can't, or, you know, it's like, it's weird. It's, it's like, a okay. Okay. Maybe we could say, well, when we had no other option, now we have another option, but Mm -hmm. do we then turn around to these, these importers who also have businesses who have bills to pay and mouths to feed and say, Hey, you can't buy those anymore, or you shouldn't buy those anymore, buy them from me for a higher price tag. I'm going to charge you more. And I'm going to tell you that you should buy them for this reason, because this is the ethical thing to do. And, and yeah, okay. Maybe that is the thing we should do. Right. Maybe that Um, is. Yeah. Go. What, what I do. Mm -hmm. And it's not even, I don't, I don't, I didn't do it. I didn't think about it a lot. Like I wasn't like, this is my plan. I'm going to, Cause I'm not against, I'm actually like pro importing. I think that there could be lots of good things that we could do. Like I'm pro keeping animals as for our entertainment. Like I'm not against it. I believe in it, obviously. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, it's part of the human, um, it's part of our culture. Like it's part of our DNA, right? It's how we evolve. But anyways, my white lips that I hatched out, they're actually a really affordable price. I am really competitive with the mm-hmm. importer's market. Mm-hmm. I don't, I actually don't advertise. I, I, I still have babies. I, if I tried a little harder, I'd probably sell them all in one day, but I, mm-hmm. I hate, I, I'm a, like, I'm this far from being a shut in, like, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not a people person. I never have been. Uh-huh. And um, so it's, it gives me anxiety having to like talk to people about selling the animals and, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I'm just really competitive with the importer price because the importer price I'm not specifically for the white lips. Like you might be in a different boat with the euros. I don't know. Like, your euros are like above, like I've, I've never seen imports that look like yours, Phil. It's like the white lips are white lips. Like a baby white lip is a baby white lip. Like they all kind of look the same. I don't know. They don't look the same on the inside, right? They mm-hmm. don't have the parasites and stuff like that, but yeah, yeah. you know, you're in a different boat than me, but I am really competitive with the, um, import market because the import market right now is just out of control for the white lips specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, like, yeah, you're right. Like, what do you do? You you've done so much work to get to the point where you are. And it's like, but then you feel like a hypocrite saying, wow, we aren't going to do that anymore. And like, when I think about importing, because I, you know, you know, that there's like, it's not, it's a greasy, um, you know, it's kind of a greasy business. There's a lot mm-hmm. of 
bad history that and image that comes from that. But I think that, I mean, when you think of the utopian idea of like, it could be really good. It could give the value to the animals that live there. And like, I don't know. I don't really feel the guilt from the import. Like, Oh, it it's out of your hands in a lot of way. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like you're taking too much on putting too much on your shoulders when you're thinking about it, about the whole thing. Like you're feeling bad. Like you're feeling bad that somebody imported those animals and you're trying to say, well, those are, those are garbage animals. And then it's your fault for trying to say my animals are better. You shouldn't buy those. And like, it's your fault. Like you can do something to save those animals. It's putting too much on yourself. And I think because we are empathetic people that like, we look at, especially if you stare at a snake and you're like so obsessed with this animal that you're imagining, like what if I was like, I don't know if you guys do this, but this is what I do. I like think about my snake so much that I'm imagining myself. Like what, how is my life? If I'm that snake, like we're doing these things that like a lot of people don't do. Of course we care about that, all that stuff. And we think like, Oh, am I a bad person for keeping these animals? But I don't think we are. It's something inside of us. Like we love Mm -hmm. these animals, but we just, we can't save the world, you know? Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Roy. I want to give you space. No, go ahead. I, so I am, I, I, Roy has said this about our, our dynamic, which is, I am a verbal processor. Like I externally process things out in the world. That's kind of how I do my critical thinking and my problem solving. And Roy is an internal processor. So he tends to (laughs) get all that shit sorted out in his fancy, handsome cranium of his, and then (laughs) spit it out of his mouth hole. Right. And then like, I, I'm the other way around. I just, I have to do it out, out verbally. It's just the way I am. Um, I agree with you that I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with bringing animals in, into, into the house. Right. Um, the, you know, there, there are these tenant, you know, these things that, that people have, have noted and, and for understandable reasons, you know, I've, I've seen things that, that say something to the effect of something like, you know, some kind of meme or infographic or info tile, you know, you name it that says something like, Oh, well, you know, these animals didn't ask to be brought into captivity. They also didn't ask to be born into the wild. They also didn't ask to have to fend, you know, like there was no, no one was consulted when this weird entity was, you know, was going to be born into the world and say, Hey, how do you feel about running away from predatory birds, coyotes, jackals, snakes, parasites, fend, you know, scraping for every piece of food that you could possibly manage to get your hands on. Um, you know, you fucking name it. No, they didn't ask for that either. Like the reason that kind of infographic is useful is because it helps reframe the keeper's mindset and say, Oh, you know what? That's actually pretty fair. Like they didn't, they didn't ask to be put in a cage in my house. Maybe I should just give them a little bit more. And from my perspective, the, 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 the barrier for entry is that you recognize this is another living creature that deserves a good life, period. Full stop. 
Like that's, that's, that's the, that's the full stop for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't, I don't mean to like pick on some of these, these different like trends or memes or whatever that come through the trade, you know, cause I've done that on previous shows, right? Like, like, mm-hmm. uh, like on a, on a solo on a solo show that Roy and I did, I kind of picked on reptiles and research in a totally friendly way. They're going to come on the show. I can't wait to talk with them. I have nothing but respect for 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 Liam and and um, uh, um, Ellie. Ellie, I have nothing but respect for them. They're great. I love what they're doing. It's not it's not like that at all. It's just that, like, they're they're in my mind. We don't need any excuse. I don't need to look at more data to know that my euros are thinking, feeling beings, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't like, it's not, it's not going to be some fucking Harvard study that that convinces me. Well, you know what, Lisa, I really think you should do right by your white lit pythons because they might have a nervous system like for fuck's sake, dude, no shit, you know? And, and again, this isn't, I'm not like trying to throw shade at, at, reptiles and research again i i really like what they're doing and i'm actually beyond psyched to have a conversation with them when that when that comes to fruition but like i don't know um in my mind it's like uh there's so much like foundational work that needs to be done here to, Mm -hmm. to make sure that like when you pass through that threshold into oh there's this whole world of herpetoculture like you should pass through this beam of light that transmits into your brain that like these are these are creatures that have feelings and emotions and wants and needs and desires and like you're the responsible it is your responsibility now and like if you want to import them it, like i i from my perspective the only way that we can have a future like the one we were talking about earlier in our conversation where we can have our cake and eat it too, where we can have the Frappuccino, sweet cow, triple decaf, extra grande ball python and the indistinguishable from the wild dart frog. The only way that future is possible is if everyone acknowledges and gets on the same fucking page to some degree even if we don't agree about all the ways of getting to the end, this sort of desired end result, we've got to have like the same baseline, the same rough foundation that we're all standing on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's like, that's what we're doing with, well, never mind. Actually, I was about to say something that's probably factually untrue. So never mind. (laughs) Um, for those of our listeners who commented and said I should drink more on the show, <laughs> I'm drinking sake <laughs> now out of a handmade thingy that my fiance and I just bought. So, uh, cheers, y'all! Like, <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go yeah. yeah. Oh, this is a. I don't know. I think that I think that a lot of this for me, I just feel like. Um, it's very easy to like make these critiques from like outside of, you know, outside of the fray. And I've just never, I've just never personally been like that moved by that. You know, I think that, um, like I said before, it's like, you know, herbiculture is here. It's, it's happening. It's not going anywhere as far as we can tell. And so then the, 
the question for me is less about like whether or not herpetoculture should or shouldn't exist and more about like, well, how can we do it well, you know, and how can we do it with, do it with compassion and care for the animals. And, um, anyway, that's kind of like, that's kind of where I fall on that whole thing. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as it relates to like, um, imports and you know wild caught versus captive bred and all of that it's like of course i think it's better for you know especially like first time you know people in the hobby to be working with captive bred animals and like personally like i find it more enjoyable working with captive bred animals even though a lot of the stuff that i have is wild caught because it's just stuff that you can't get captive bred or it's um really hard to get captive bred right and so um I do feel like there's so much in the world of like reptile import export that it, that can be improved upon. And I like personally, I would love to see a trend more toward um, smaller numbers of, of animals that are given better care along the way of that whole process, you know, with higher in, in, if that, and if that accompanies a higher price tag, you know, I think that like maybe that would incentivize, you know, people like who know what they're doing, you know, to buy those animals, you know, people who are breeders or who are more experienced, you know, or who have done their research to do that. Um, you know, seeing like hundreds of species come in every year and then sell for, you know, $20 or whatever, just, and then, and there, there is no, there are no captive bred animals of that species around because no one's really taking them seriously is that's always disappointing for me to see. So, yeah, no, I, sure. I don't a, think that, I mean, of course, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say like in the utopian dream, as far as if you're going to talk about imports, I think it would mm-hmm. be really cool. Like the people that are importers, if, um, they could set something up where it's like a fair trade type of thing where Uh um, you actually make connections with the people who actually live in the places, like the people who are actually catching the animals, not some like third party in another city in another country, even where you could actually help out the communities where the their animals are coming from so it could create like a fair trade type of like environment around those because then those those people you could go there and set up like a real like because a lot of the farm bread the farm that's just a front right oh yeah right wild caught that's the front for wild caught stuff and everybody knows it but we all just accept it but mm-hmm. and the, the problem is, is because most of that wild caught market is going to the pet trade. It's not going yeah. to pediculturists. It's going mm-hmm. to people that just want a pet. It's like buying a goldfish, putting it in a bowl, keeping it for a month until it dies. And then you're like, okay, mm-hmm. I did that for a month. You know, that's that kind of thing. But then there's the high end the herpeticulturists, you know, we're like the high end will pay a higher price tag for an animal that we want to, we want it because we want to keep it alive and we want to propagate it through herpeticulture. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we're talking about this, like this thing that it spans such a wide spectrum of people from like people like on Roy's end where he's like going all out and creating this like giant 
you know, biome like for his animals and he's actually see doing things that gives me goosebumps when I hear the stories. So all the way to the end where someone's buying basically a goldfish that's going to live for a month inside a really crappy, like, you know, mark, like a, this is what you buy when you buy your $25, blah, blah, blah. You buy this hundred dollar thing. And then, so it's like such a, but in the dream, and I think the frog, aren't there, there's like uh, yeah. dart frog farms where they basically yep. did do that. So there is a model for it. There's yep, there definitely is. a model. Yeah. And um, I I don't know if you guys know who Dan Malaria is. He's an oh, yeah. importer. Yeah. And um, he's, he, I know that he's trying to work with um, some people to create mm-hmm. where he's actually getting in touch with the people who actually live there and trying to make yeah. sure that they, those people get paid because you're talking about people that are ca- getting paid for $6 for an animal that's going to cost yeah. like a thousand dollars at market. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. that does nothing for that community where that animal lives. And, mm-hmm. you know, it creates, we we prize those animals so much we'll pay thousands of dollars for them but we won't actually pay the people that live in the area like no wonder Mm -hmm. they just like don't care about the forests and you know Mm -hmm. like i don't know like it's probably just a pipe dream and a like a utopian that can't actually happen because the world's too big and there's too many things at play but that is what i wish that they could say this animal was brought in from this importer and you can pay a premium for this one, but you know, it's coming from a fair trade importer, you know, that something like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that that would be the, that would be a way that we could feel better about buying the wild caught animals. (laughs) Yeah, true. Well, yeah, but it's also, I think it would just be better for everyone, you know, and most importantly, better for the animals. For the animals? That's the biggest thing. Because they would know how to take, because a lot of the people, when they're catching them, they're just putting them in a box, waiting until CITES gives them a permit. Who knows? They'll catch it. And then they're waiting for CITES to give them a permit. Then they finally get the permit might be months later because sometimes CITES doesn't give the permit until really late. And, you know, by then the animal's already shot. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, I mean, I think it's, yeah. I mean, there's definitely an argument to be made about like, is this even realistic to even be thinking about these things or talking about them? And at the same time, it's also like, well, like, I think that things should be aspirational on some level, you know, like we should be seeking to like improve, you know, improve our lives and like our condition. Especially the high end market, like like, maybe not for fire skinks, (laughs) but... Like there yeah. might not be a market, like a way to do it with something like fire skinks, but you right. know, maybe they could go yeah, to a facility but... where something that, you know, you could have fire skinks and the, I don't know what, because I think it's yeah. ball pythons that live in the fire skink habitat, but totally. yeah. I don't know what, <laughs> something, some really cool Cobra maybe. Yeah. Let's go Cobra. <laughs> <laughs> Well, can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like to breed your white lips? I know that, I mean, that's not something that's happening super commonly. 
as far as I understand. I mean, I don't really have my finger much on the pulse of the Python community. It's not, it's not what I do, but I know that it's not like a species that I'm seeing regularly offered as captive bred and born. And I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit to like what your experience of that was, was and what it meant um, to you. It's been pretty crazy. Like, um, I had, I had bred a ball python, I had bred a carpet python, and then I bred a white lip python. And I did it one time, one time, one time. And it was, I, when it happened with the white lip python the first time, it was almost an accident because I had a plan. I was going to um, do, because I already tried to do um, cycle, a little bit of cycle feeding mixed in with um, temperature cycling. And I really failed on the temperature cycling. I, I dropped the temperature way too low for her. And, um, she did basically what I was talking about with the green tree Python, where she went, she started to swell. I was like, Oh, this is great. I was dropping the temperature. Then she went off food. She went into a really long shed cycle where she stayed. I started to get worried because she was in shed for so long. And then she finally shed out and she just looked thin again. She didn't look like she had follicles at all. So it wasn't a, she, I never saw an ablation. I never saw a lock. I think what happened was I dropped the temperatures too low. I wasn't providing with her. And, and so she didn't feel confident that she was going to be able to lay eggs. So she was mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to do this. This is like bad weather that suddenly happened or something. I don't know. But so then I thought, okay, I'm going to, Next year, I'm going to, well, I, my plan was I'm just going to feed her really heavy that spring and then um, and then starve her it through the summer to give her like a, a food cycle where, you know, because in the, they're, they're basically on the equator where they mm-hmm. come from. And so it's warm all the time there. And but there are seasons that have to do with wet and dry seasons. Right. And so my idea was that they go through a cycle where they're, they have a lot of food and then they have to wait out the, the dry season when it's Mm -hmm. cooler. It's a little cooler in the dry season, but not that much. And, but there's not as much food. So they probably wait that out. And the snakes that had, my idea was that the snakes that had had like fed enough so that they still have a little bit of fat reserves once it starts warming up and the animals start breeding and producing again, the food starts, then I would start jamming food down her throat. But Mm -hmm. so when I was ramping her up for that summer fast, my male had um, gone to the bathroom in his enclosure. So I thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'm going to clean out his enclosure. And I just put him in her enclosure by accident. Well, not by accident, but I put him in her enclosure while I was cleaning his out. And when I went back to get him, he was spurring her and I'd never seen that behavior. So Um, they locked that night. It was in the springtime. Most people breed them in the fall and then they lay in the summer and lay are, yeah, they breed them in the fall and then they lay in the spring, mm -hmm. but mine bred in the spring and then laid in the late summer. So it was like the opposite season. And I talked to Ryan Young and he's, he's like the most well-known Python breeder or one of the most accomplished Python breeders and um, molecular reptile, right? Yes. And he told me, well, just do exactly what you did 
next year and see if it works again. Because right. I was like, because I was like, whoa, this is weird that she laid in the opposite spring cycle. And I just did exactly what I did. I fed her really heavy, starved her, and then fed her really heavy again. And mm-hmm. as I was feeding her heavy after the, the fast, that's mm-hmm. when I do the introductions with the male. And they bred that, they bred Basically, I started pairing them in the spring after I had started feeding her again after the, mm-hmm. the winter. And then they bred most of that whole summer until she like all the way until she ovulated um, in June. Wow. Was it July? Well, it was in the it was mid to late summer. And then she laid in August and they hatched out in September. Does that sound right? Wow. The numbers. But um it's thrilling like the um the babies from the first clutch were a lot bigger Mm -hmm. and um they she laid 10 eggs the first time the second time she laid 14 eggs and the Uh babies were a lot smaller and I actually had one egg that didn't make it in the second clutch and I had one baby that pipped threw an egg in like right up into another egg and that baby ended up dying in, inside its egg. I, I mm. don't know if it just like was like, I don't know what's going on and then drowned in its egg. Yeah. And then I had another baby from that clip, the second clutch it, when the first few pipped, I went and I cut all of the other ones. And as I, I cut one and then I was, I was cutting the others, that first baby that I cut popped out it like just shot out of its egg and ripped up its umbilical cord oh. so, you know and so i ended up with 10 babies both times but the second clutch the babies were a lot lot smaller um they were also um i did i did something different but i think so the first clutch i separated them all okay mm-hmm. And immediately, like I sexed them and put them all in their own tubs. And then the, so, and those babies were very big and very aggressive. They're Mm -hmm. excellent feeders. They ate right out of, like they shed out. I waited a month. I offered food. They all ate. Mm. Um, The second clutch, it was a lot harder to get them to eat. I had to be a lot more patient. Um, They are also not as aggressive. They, um, are more reluctant to bite they're calmer um mm. wow. but you, you would think that they, they would be the calm ones but it's just that they're they're i see it as more that they're weaker yeah, they're, yeah. you yeah, know they were vigorous. smaller they're weaker i think it what i suspect it has to do with is breeding or back-to-back years mm. i um what when i was feeding her i was rather than feeding her because i would feed her like every other day and um, that's wow. not really common. A lot of people don't do that, but I was feeding her very small food. She's a mm-hmm. six foot snake and mm-hmm. I was feeding her large mice and um, small rats like yeah. every other day, even every day. Maybe I'd give her a couple one day, but mm-hmm. so she's getting a lot of small food. And so I'm thinking I didn't feed her. I should have been feeding her bigger food. Mm-hmm. And also I, um, from now on when I'm going to breed one of my snakes um I'm going to um even though a lot of people don't believe in it I'm just going to do it and see what happens I'm going to dust all the rats with um mineral oil yeah yeah 
um, it's one of those things. If you mention that in a group or a um, like a Facebook group or something, a lot of people think that you don't need to um, supplement snakes' food, but I kind of think that you do. Yeah, um, I don't think it could hurt. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, like I think that it could only be a benefit. You know, it's like if it's. I don't think you're going to over supplement, you know, and yeah, maybe and not so, like every time I feed them, especially if I'm yeah. feeding the female every other day or something, I'm not going to put it on there every day, but at least, you know, once a week or every yeah. other week or something. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. I've, I've even considered like, um, like dipping a, a wet, mouse and pangea powder you know or like or even like i tried like, that i tried <laughs> yeah I, yeah because um uh i saw this video on youtube of a guy who lives in australia and he went up to uh-huh. cape york and saw um green tree pythons and mm-hmm. they go up into these um passion vine um yeah Vines, yeah, and course. they live in there because they're at night. The rats and the mice come and eat the passion fruit, of so they're course. sitting yeah. there eating um, rats that are gorged on passion fruit. So yeah. I'm just like, yeah, they're eating a gut. Um, people say, oh, we don't need to um, supplement our snakes because they're eating whole prey. Like that's literally yeah, yeah. like I dare you to go onto a um, onto a Facebook group or some sort of social media and say, Hey, does anybody here, um, dust their snakes food? What do you mm-hmm. use? And you'll, I guarantee you people will say, we don't yeah. need to, they eat whole prey. Like that yeah, is yeah, the verbiage you will hear yeah, and it'll be repeated. Course. And I, I, I'm just like, okay. Um, like, cause I, you know, when I was a new keeper, I was like, I saw had been like researching, keeping reptiles and, all one of the first things I learned from all the people that keep bearded dragons is like, you have to supplement their Mm -hmm. food, their crickets with um, calcium and D3. You, you switch it up where you give them um, calcium without D3 sometimes. But so I was like, well, what do we do with our, how, how do we do it with our snakes? And people would say, Oh, they eat whole prey. So they don't need it. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense because it's not like we're sitting there like cutting up the roaches and the crickets and only feeding yeah. them like one part of the cricket. They're eating a whole prey yeah. too, but we're still dusting those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, what is, what is less whole yeah. a mouse or a cricket less whole? Like what's it? Still an entire, I would, yeah. I would actually argue that the crickets and the roaches are better than the frozen thawed rats that we give our snakes because they're living, they still have living bacteria in their guts. And really we can, yeah. I, I keep roaches and I gut load those. And when I feed them to my skinks, they will pop them open and it'll be like, if I feed them oranges, there's a little orange, like they're eating a whole oh, chunk yeah. of orange. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we can't do that with the frozen thawed rat. Like we can't gut load our rats. They don't have living bacteria in their guts. Like, you know, you hear about turtles needing to eat poop. Like, uh, Mm -hmm. I I don't, I forget the word for it. There's a scientific word for it, but animals, yeah, they eat that because they need that to digest their, um, but 
our snakes are getting never getting that from live animals. Yeah, that's, that's a really right. good point. Yeah, I've never even considered the whole implications of the the microbiome, you know, being impacted because you're feeding frozen thawed. That totally makes a lot of sense to me. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think this is something I think quite a bit about. Um, it's, it's a, it's a super, super interesting topic. And, um, yeah, frankly, I just have so many, I have way actually a little too many thoughts and feelings to kind of <laughs> I actually talked to, um, very briefly, it was at a reptile show at the Anaheim show. Um, Ryan McVeigh was there. Do you guys know who that is? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, like he's really big into innovating and furthering, um, herpeticulture. Um, and I asked him about, um, how I was kind of disappointed that there wasn't uh, something on the market that people that keep snakes that we could gut load like our frozen thought, like something we could inject into our, our, mm. our rodents before we fed them to our snakes. And because I do feel a little like worried, like, am I overdosing my snake on something? Like, mm. am I not, am I providing the wrong about like it's the wrong balance and mm -hmm. is it too much calcium like what so i'm kind of experimenting here by putting on something that was formulated for lizards on giving it to a snake but if you do it sparingly i think it would be better than not doing it yeah well and, and I, I mean i you know i hesitate to say this because it's not meant to sound like disparaging or anything but like, there's no, like the FDA is not regulating what we're giving to the reptiles. You know what I'm saying? Like you can just make whatever you want and put it in a package and say, Hey, this is meant for your, for your bearded dragon or your ball python, you know, whatever it is. And we'll be like, Oh, okay. I'll just go ahead and buy that. <laughs> but it's like, no one's, they're not doing studies on the long-term effects of that or, or how, um, I mean, I think the closest you can get is, you know, like I know that um, one of the previous guests on our show, Alan Rapashi, talked a lot about consulting with veterinarians and um, zookeepers around formulating the diets that he makes for Rapashi. And so I think that's really great. But like at the end of the day, um, you know, we'll say, you know, like you just said, oh, making this, I'm using this thing that's like formulated for lizards. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, like how formulated, you know, like yeah. exactly how, right. And, and for what lizards and, you know, on which continent and like, what kind of, are we talking about? Like, like I use mineral for my Xenogama and for my Euromastics. It's like, neither of those things have similar diets at all. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's, it's like, um, I understand that I have no qualifications to say what should or should not go in mineral, but it's like, I'm willing to bet that, uh, you know, I don't know. Never, never mind. I'm actually going to, I got to not, man, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't drink on the show. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I actually have, I, I have heard of um, someone um, giving calcium to their python. Yeah, sure. So have I. I've heard of, I've heard of it. In, in um, Quetzal Dwyer. Yeah, yeah Quetzal yeah. Dwyer. He uh, gave it to his Bolin's python. Right. 
but he actually thinks that he may have overdosed her. Oh, fascinating. Okay. But I don't like, he just talked about, I just heard, like, he didn't tell me personally. I heard him talking about it on another um, podcast, Yeah, but um, I really, his train of thought for why he was doing it is had to do with um, there is a type of lizard that he breeds that they require like a really during their um, there's a season when all the crabs like in down. Oh, like those little land crabs when they all come out and they're just everywhere and that the animals are just gorging on those. So they're getting like this calcium boost and then that stimulates their breeding. Interesting. So he thought maybe if he gave the python the calcium boost, that would stimulate breeding, having a boost of calcium. Right, 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 right. For sure. Which makes and it seemed to seem like maybe it worked because he got he got Bolin's eggs, but then the next mm. year she didn't. She died. Right. But he he thinks he he said that maybe he gave her too much, but I don't know if that's really what killed her, but maybe yeah. you guys could have a lot and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we definitely <laughs> Definitely would love to talk to Quetzal at some point. Yeah. Yes. It would be great to have a conversation with him probably more than once. Um, Well, I mean, you know, like per a conversation that we were having before we started, started recording, you know, I had conversations with two or three other notable individuals about some of the stuff going on with my Euromastics. And uh, uh, one of the things that some, that each person independently reminded me of is one when you're feeding a lot of wild foods, it's sitting there in like an organic topsoil or like some kind of organic topsoil. So it has a a higher calcium ratio or higher calcium amount than the uh, shitty greens that we get in the store. They're not really getting the same kind of like, like dosage of, of like nutrient intake because the the topsoil is so poor. The topsoil layer on most farmland is so poor. It has to be injected with all this extra nutrients, right? And then the other thing is you look at like wild uromastics, like footage of wild uromastics, and all they're doing is licking and, and tasting and being interested in everything around them. Well, where they come from, it's fucking sand and gravel. It's all calcium carbonate. Like, like a huge amount of what they're messing with it's calcium in the first place. So they probably just have like a higher need for calcium in general, just, 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 just as a barrier for entry, you know? Um, so that was something that was always really intriguing to me and, and like, just stood out like, Oh yeah, no shit. You know, people talk about euros as, Oh, uh, Euromastics. Do you know what kind of, uh, like intestinal structure they have? It's like, yeah. Do you also know that you know, so they'll say that as a way of saying like, oh, Euromastics shouldn't really get bugs. It's like, well, Euromastics also have been cited in the wild of having up to 75% insect matter in their gut, in the, mm. the wild, wild animals. It's like, well, maybe we shouldn't be giving them 75% insect matter in their diet, but like, I'm sure a handful of mealworms here and there is not going to hurt them at all. It's probably going to be good for them. You know? Yeah. They probably have seasons where there's like, yeah, that's right. it'll probably rain. And then the bugs will just like be everywhere. So they're going to eat all those bugs, but for a short period of time. Yep. And we, and we don't know like what kind of bugs in what amount for how long we have no idea, no fucking idea. So yeah, it's just like, it's God damn it. There are so many variables and so many unknowns and so many curiosities and so many 
considerations to make in what we're doing, which is why I love having these conversations because it's like, yeah, sure. Like herpetoculture has come a long way since the seventies, you know, when you had to use aquarium lights and like figure it out for yourself, it's come mm-hmm. a long way, but you know, sorry to interrupt, oh, no, but no, please do. I I have, um, I'm wearing my NorCal Herpetological Society t-shirt. It's yeah. not in the video, oh. but, um, I have an old publication from the nineties from it's a really old herb society and it's been around for a long, long time. And they used to put, have like symposiums and then put out a publication based on the symposium. And I have one, I think it's from either 96 or 97. And I was reading through it the other day and a, like the back, they have this whole, like, kind of like a, like an outline of, where her pediculture should go and the yeah. what kinds of things that her pediculturists think about and questions they should ask and and they are talking about a lot of this exact same stuff we're still yeah. talking oh, yeah. about it's like what this is exactly what we're still talking about we haven't learned it's almost like because we we are in this new age of communication. It's like yeah. there is like a disconnect from the old, com- like the old communication didn't translate over. Mm-hmm. And so there's all this, it's like all the new people don't even know what we already did, where mm-hmm. her stuff that her pediculture did a long time ago. It's like, we think we're inventing the wheel and we're progressing, but really we're doing the exact same thing that they were doing in the nineties. Oh, for, for sure. And (laughs) this other thing too, which is like, um, I've heard people in particular circles say things like, uh, if you, if you were to cite something from say the seventies or eighties, just hypothetically, we're just, again, this is just hypothetical, right? Um, I've heard people say things along the lines of, oh, well, you know, studies or results that are are older than a certain amount of time, we know we don't really credit those anymore. We don't really use those as as like viable data because their methodology or information gathering or whatever it was was suspect. And it's like, all right, come get the fuck out of here. Come on. I mean, like, sure, I can understand when it comes to like, okay. I can understand that, say, like blood panels and things like that. Maybe the tech was just unreliable. Okay, sure. I can get on board with that. But that doesn't mean that the anecdotal data or the experiential data gathered by people doing whatever they were doing at that point in time, that doesn't mean that all of that stuff ought to be disregarded or ignored or just not even brought into the discussion who cares if it was a hundred years ago like the people had the same brains a a thousand years ago that they have today ten thousand years ago people the same fucking brain for lack of a but you know give or take maybe a little bit bigger a little more meat in the diet you know who knows i I don't know just just saying i'm just messing around here but it's like a little less plastic in our blood yeah, maybe a little less plastic Mm -hmm. little you know you you name it right uh but but on 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 balance it was it's the same brain uh the idea that information gathered in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s is not useful is is nonsense to me i don't i don't get it i don't get it at all oh yeah 
Yeah, I don't get it at all. Um, so, all right. So, so, um, I, this, this conversation is, is excellent and I'm so psyched about, (laughs) um, and in like 20 minutes, I got to eat dinner with my fiance. So I would love to, if it's cool with you guys to steer us towards some of like the closing stuff, not because, and again, I, um, Lisa, I, I think it'd be great. You're uh, yet another person who I think we should have on more than once and, yes. and talk about some various stuff. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Like 100%. Only if, only if you can bear it, Lisa. Only <laughs> because I feel like we have a lot more that we'll end up wanting to cover. I feel like the guest job on the show is just to egg fill on. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go. Like, bring it. Let's, yeah. yeah, for sure. I feel like. <laughs> and, and I feel like my job in the show is just to play devil's advocate and <laughs> fuck around just because it's and drink. My job is to do the <laughs> intro. <laughs> I have no more sake left. Just FYI. <laughs> yeah. Roy just does the intro. Um, no, I mean, that's not true. That's not fair. Roy's the best. Um, anyway. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Oh, wait. Did I lose? Okay, cool. I just wanted to make oh, sure I thought for a second I lost you guys. Um, okay, so uh, what? I, one thing I'm curious about, and and I know we'll have more. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you on again if you're up for it, and, and talk about some some of this stuff more in depth. But like, um, I'm curious to ask you, what do you think the future looks like for not just for you? And what you're doing specifically, but also like for herpetoculture, you know, like what, what do you, what do you think what you're doing is going to look like in 20 years? And what do you think herpetoculture may look like in 50 or a hundred? I'm really curious if you have any thoughts about this or if you've thought about this. Um, I haven't thought about it that much. I'm 50. So I'm kind of like, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this, but I think that we're just going to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish that we weren't so, um, it wasn't like there weren't two sides to her pediculture. I wish we learned to appreciate each other. Like the, mm-hmm. I feel like the people that do the, um, the, Henry Ford model of herpeticulture, <laughs> like that, that is a thing. And I, the, especially the people who created it, like there's a lot of information that came out of that, that mm. I really respect and appreciate and like value. And um, I wish that we didn't have to fight with each other over it. Like, mm. you know, i you know, I, I think that we're going to get better in all ways. Like there's going to be people that are going to like have nicer enclosures than even Roy. Oh yeah. Someday. And <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be like, it's going to be like, there's going to be the high end, um, fish tank people, you know, like you have these wall units put in your house where yeah. you can keep a really beautiful lizard and it's, you know, it's going to take a lot of people passing down knowledge and not having that information, like that we lose the information from the generation before we have to keep the communication open. But um, yeah, I think that there's a place for all types of herpeticulturists and pet keepers. Mm-hmm. And if we just 
educate each other and maybe someday there will be a option where if we want to get an imported animal if we can create bridges and have a fair trade like type of or you know system mm-hmm. down you know there might be someone innovative who will go out and start a business that does that mm-hmm. you know i don't know i feel like it's bright we have to look at the bright side like there's a lot of gloomy stuff about her pediculture right now but i think that it could be really awesome yeah hell yeah especially with people like you guys Leading, oh, the, you know. leading the charge. <laughs> oh shucks, you know. <laughs> yeah. no, I um um I already told Roy that um me and my friend Kathy, we love this podcast, and um we're like you're you guys don't know us, but we're your like little old lady groupies, you know. We're like, <laughs> oh, those kids, they're 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 so put together and they're both so handsome and they're so smart (laughs) well okay first first of all i cannot deny that roy is one handsome son (laughs) can't deny that at all but put together let me assure you i am far from from put together but that's it my yeah. first thought when you said put together was like, well, I'm glad the facade is working. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people can't even get the facade right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, you know, that's, listen, it, it is really gratifying to hear. Like, it's really nice to know that there are people who value what we do and value mm-hmm. because, you know, otherwise we could just be like, shouting into the ether here and just saying things that no one's paying attention to and that no one's interested in. And like, you know, the opposite problem can happen too. You know, like one thing we never, I know that Roy and I never ever want this to be the case, but we also never want like the idea that we're doing any, anything of interest or speciality going to our heads, you know, like Mm -hmm. never, like never, 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 never. It's just something we are so uninterested in. We, we don't want to fall victim to or anything like that because it happens, right? We've all seen people who do good at, do very well at, at something and have it become something that they can be, that they use to sort of be arrogant or, um, you know, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to add there. Um, And so there's a balance between being really, really psyched to hear that kind of gratifying feedback and feel, you know, give us like Mormon fuzzies and really make us feel good about what we're doing. And at the same time, just remembering to like, all right, well, don't, don't get too amped, you know, like don't be too, don't be too psyched and, and, and everything, but that is super nice of you to tell us. And thank you. Really definitely appreciate you sharing that with us quite a bit. you gotta you gotta take the the Bill Clinton approach with that, and you can like let it in, but don't inhale. You know. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 that's great. So, that's really. <laughs> uh, no, it's 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 it does mean a lot though to to get feedback like that. And for me, yes. like it's it's just it's motivating. You know, it's like if we're yeah, like Phil said, if we're doing this and we're just kind of you know, speaking into the ether, then it's, and not getting any sort of, yeah, not, not getting any feedback, whether it's good or bad. Right. It's, um, it just kind of, it would be easy to lose steam, but, um, I really, I really appreciate 
you saying that. And to everyone else who's, you know, listening, who's, who's reached out and offered encouragement to the show, it means a lot. Keeps me motivated and wanting to do better and hopefully continue to improve this thing. It's true. So. Yeah. And, and also it probably stands to say that like, uh, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a two-way street, you know, like a huge, a huge, like a solid 75 to 80% of what makes the show in the first place is just the the person that we're talking to, you know, it wasn't for folks like you, Lisa, and everyone else who we've had on the show, who's like given us their time and given us their thoughts and feelings. Like we wouldn't have anything to share with anybody, you know, it's like, we have our stuff that we're doing Roy and Roy and I, but like, it's kind of one dimensional. It's like, I got a bunch of Euromastics and kiddie pools and Roy's got a bunch of who cares. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It it really does feel good when you're doing this thing. And like, there's not a lot of people you can talk to about it. You know, you're so obsessed with this thing. And so when you do meet someone that's interested in something similar, it feels good to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Even if you, it makes you blush the whole time you're doing it. Yeah, no, for sure. sure. Yeah, no, same. That's a hundred percent true. Um, well, so with this in mind, with, with all of this, uh, kind of as like the backdrop and, and the, 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 the buildup to what we've been, what we're talking about here, um, we have one closing question for you, which I think you might know, uh, what's, what's coming. Um, uh, Roy, do you want to do the honors with the final, the closer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why herpetoculture? Well, I did know about this question (laughs) as a listener. Um, And I thought a lot about it. And so far, my favorite answer that anyone has given has to be Phil's in your guys' original show, how it almost feels like it's something innate, like it's part of our DNA. Like Mm. we evolved doing herpetoculture not necessarily herpeticulture, but doing culture, culturing plants, culturing other types of animals. It's like a, like, yeah, I got a um, fire skink. And then I thought, oh, it's doing really good. I should get it a friend. Like there's something inside of me. Like I remember when I got the, um, a, um, bed of fish and I was like keeping it in a pretty nice little aquarium. And, um, it, it was doing really well. And it, I didn't know about Benefish. Like I didn't research it. It was just like something to have on my counter. And um, it started to do the little bubble nest thing. And I told my friend, I'm like, oh, I think there's something wrong with it. It's like doing these bubbles. And she told me, oh, that's, he's doing good. It, it means he wants, he's making a nest. He wants to uh, find a mate. And I was like, what? He wants to find a mate. And <laughs> like, I ran out and found him a mate. I was like, oh, I'm getting him a mate. And I sat there and I watched them, you know, do their little thing. And I, I saw him lay the, or her lay that he cupped her and laid the eggs and he put the eggs up in the bubbles. And I was just like, that's amazing. Wow. You know, like, but my friend who had, she had been keeping Betta for a really long time, but she, you know, most people who keep Betta, they're like, oh, I kept mine a lot alive for seven years. How long did you keep yours alive? You know, they're fine just to do that. But as soon as I saw the nest, I was like, oh, I want to see how far this can go. You know, there's something inside of me. But the thing about it is it feels creative. 
like yeah. her pediculture. Yeah. It's yeah. like talking about her pediculture. It's something that, because I'm one of those type of people, I have to have something that I'm obsessed with. Otherwise, I feel like there's something missing. And in the past, I'd been obsessed with things like, you know, punk rock music, record, you know, collecting records, going to rock shows. Um, you know, I get obsessed with like a comic book, you know, buy a lot of comics, uh, go to movies, like things that were always just like, I was just a consumer. Mm-hmm. But the thing about her pediculture that's really cool is it feels creative. It feels artistic. You also have to learn about the environment and think about the things. And it creates like a whole new way of thinking because you're trying to imagine yourself as this different being. You know, you have to do stuff. I, my, I'm forcing myself to do things that I've never done, like sit there like I'll stay awake at night because I'm sitting there like wondering what my snake is doing like what is it doing right now like why won't it eat Mm -hmm. you know like why is it doing this or oh is it doing the thing I am hope like when you think okay I think I get it I I think it's gonna do this and so then you just want to run in there and catch it doing the thing that you thought you're gonna see you know it's like a creative it's definitely a lot cooler than my other um, obsessions and passions that I've had in the past. Like, and I, I think Phil is right. It fulfills something that's like in our, it's in our evolution as humans. Mm. It's something that I didn't have before. Mm. Does that answer it? Yeah, that's that's a great answer. answer. I loved it. It's, I loved that, especially that very last part. Like, it's something that I didn't have before. Like that, mm-hmm. for some reason to me, that really like jumped out. I mean, everything you said was great. I really, <laughs> everything. But that in particular, for, to me, felt like highly poignant, like really, really particularly interesting because I feel like, um, you know, to, to, and this is something to what Roy, to, like Roy is actually is somebody who, who kind of turned me on to this particular idea, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, as all of the rest, all of the, like all of the, the fact that when I look outside my apartment building, I don't see a whole lot of wildlife out here, mm-hmm. you know? And so like the desire, like the fact that it's, that's not normal. Like it should be that I should see a lot of wildlife when I look out my window or when I go out into the world, I should be interacting with nature every single day. And I am, but it's just in such a diminished, reduced, Mm -hmm. sparse way that it's like, it's, I think there are those of us for whom the need to be around more animals and more nature and more other beings is much, much stronger you know, maybe that, that seems, I don't know. I just, I really like, I think what you said was really excellent there. That was really, thank you. Thanks, Bill. That means a lot to me. I thought what what you said was actually excellent too. It it definitely um, made me think I thought for a long time about it and I was like, yeah, that's how I am too. I'm like you, there's something inside of us that it drives, like not everyone has that. Like, like I said, my friend didn't run out and want to see what happens when you put a female in with the yeah. fish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're like natural yeah. culturists, like whatever yes. it is. Yes, for sure. 
Absolutely. Love it. Roy, what do you think about all that? I'm, I'm, I'm right there with it. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I mean, especially like that, that piece that Phil was just speaking to that just the last thing you said, it's like, you know, it's, it's something that you hadn't, didn't have before. I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but it's like, I think that there's parts of us that can get kind of go unmet, you know, our whole lives. And then once those, once they're met, it's like, oh, there's this other whole thing, you know, or this other, like there's other, this other part of myself that, that, um, wants to be expressed that I, it has been latent all of this time, you know, or, or dormant all of this time. And, um, yeah, I, I've, I've felt that with herpetoculture too. It's like hard to imagine kind of not having some sort of involvement with herpetoculture for the rest of my life, you know, because of that, yeah. there's just something that it's deeply gratifying about it for me. That's true. Roy, before we, before we, uh, find out, before we ask where everybody yeah. can follow, uh, Lisa and see what she's up to on the interwebs, yeah. what's that, what's that fancy shirt you have there under, on your, oh, hoodie? Yeah. what's going on over there? Oh, this is just some artwork. This is some artwork by my, um, by my homie, Philip Leitz. He's an amazing <laughs> illustrator and artist. And these are some grappling varanids. Whoa. <laughs> really cool. Premium print quality. Um where did you get that? Where where in the I world? I got that. That's some that's some uh uh proprietary uh project herpetoculture merch that you can get on uh projectherp.com slash shop. That was so good. So good. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I forgot that I was wearing this shirt. But it's nice, um, it fits you great. Yeah. If anyone out there wants to find a really cool uh, shirt with some grappling for anids, there's not a lot of options for that. So we've got you covered. It's true. And they actually, there are lots of options in terms of the colors of the shirt you can select and stuff like that. So, bam, there you go. So, so Lisa, where's plug? Yeah, well, that was, we had to. It was just, it was there. It was low hanging fruit. Uh, Lisa, where can um, people follow you and what you're up to with regard to herpetoculture? Um, my social media is just my name for Instagram and Facebook. Nice. I, awesome. I do have a TikTok, but I don't really use it or look at it. So, but that's, and yeah, I don't have a YouTube or anything like that, but okay. yeah, just my name and you'll find me. Nice. Awesome. Okay. Great. Good deal. We'll have links to that too in the show notes for, for our listeners and such. Thanks guys. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm going to hit the button. Yeah, hit the button real quick. All right. Good night.